Good evening and welcome to the first episode of the history of lubrication. I'm your host, Gabriel Pericas, and we are grateful to be recording this podcast at the wonderful space of the Emily Harvey Foundation in New York City. Now, for the record, before we begin, the title of this show, The History of Lubrication, is intentionally misleading. We are not going to talk about lubrication in general, and certainly not in terms of history. What we are going to do instead is an attempt at creating a modest cultural history of one lubricant in particular. Human saliva, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the primary lubricant, right? Or, in other words, the lubricant of the poor. But do not let the viscosity of this proposition dissuade you. We are going to dissolve this topic in a narrative pool. We are going to deliver it progressively and episodically in a hopefully entertaining manner. So stick with us and let's get started. Our first story is about a book. In 1919, Suzanne Duchamp made a painting of a book was based on a photograph that she took of a book hanging with strings from the railing of her balcony in Paris. The book is open and exposed to the weather, and the painting is an accurate reproduction of the photograph, only it is upside down and it features an inscription that reads La Redimade Malore de Marcel. For her wedding, her brother Marcel had sent her a gift from Buenos Aires. It was a textbook titled Geometrie Descriptive by Louis Colros. And he sent it along with a written proposition that she hanged the book outdoors to execute what he called the ready-made malore, which has been translated in English as the unhappy ready-made, although I think the wretched ready-made would be more appropriate, or perhaps the miserable ready-made. The geometry book was forced to interact with the contingencies of nature, the wind, the rain, and the sun, all contributed to its slow degradation the book represented a worldview that believed in universal abstractions and the rationalization of nature, and so it was punished with the unforgiving and chaotic reality of the elements. But this is not the book I want to talk about. I want to talk about another book, one that at the present time is also the victim of a Duchampian torture. A book that, just like Suzanne did to Geometry Descriptive, I have tied to the ledge of one of the windows here at the Emily Harvey Foundation. A window that faces the Soho section of New York's Broadway, where the book is, as we speak, confronted by the weather and also by the notorious stupidity in the air. The book I want to talk about shares with Geometry Descriptive that it is also an attempt to put a mathematical frock coat to the universe, as Bataille would have put it. But in the case of my book, the grounds for its punishment go beyond a vindication of the formulas and beyond an advocacy for chance and unpredictability. As we will see, they involve a libidinal incontinence, a moral imperative, and a private frustration, and other offenses that we will disclose later on. The book I want to talk about was written in 1968 by an Italian philosopher named Carmelo Ottaviano. It is an attempt at building a universal aesthetic theory. Ottaviano identified the golden ratio, the divina proporzione, as the underlying proportion governing all natural forms that he considered beautiful. 
And therefore, he claimed that this omnipresent law should ultimately ground all aesthetic judgment and become a standard for future technological and cultural production. But as we will see, what is remarkable about the book is not the theory in and of itself, but rather the unorthodox methodology that Ottaviano employs to prove it. Personally, I have been mightily obsessed with this book for more than a decade now, and in today's episode, I would like to tell you the somewhat convoluted story of how uh, I ended up having it. Which, to be honest, it's not that interesting of a story. In fact, all my attempts at engaging with it got promptly interrupted or reached a dead end. So what I'm going to do to account for some of these encounters and give you an idea of the extent of my obsession is I will read a number of emails I exchanged with different people over the years discussing Ottaviano's book in hopes that the gossipy nuance of the story captures your attention and builds up your curiosity. The first one is from 2010. I had heard about the book in 2006 during my first year at the University of Barcelona. It was mentioned in passing in a geometry class led by Professor Lino Cabezas, and four years later, in 2010, for a reason I will explain later, I vaguely recalled it. So I wrote an email to Professor Cabezas inquiring about it. Hello, Lino. My name is Gabriel Pericas. I was your student in the first year of my fine arts bachelor four years ago. I am writing because I am trying to remember this book I believe you mentioned in class once. The way I recall it, it had to do with a man who constructed the theory by drawing spirals onto images of natural phenomena. And that's pretty much what I remember, but I would love to know more about it. Thank you very much in advance. Kind regards, Gabriel. He responded promptly with a complete bibliographical reference. Dear Gabriel, I believe that the book you remember is Carmelo Ottaviano, La Legge della Bellezza come Legge Universale della Natura, published by Thedam in Padova in 1970. And he also pointed out that the university's library had a copy available and finished, if you would like to know more about this topic, we can meet one day to talk about it. It is one of my research interests and I accumulate a lot of information about it. Count with my friendship and my help, Lino Cabezas. I wrote back and thanked him for the information. However, I unfortunately had to decline his offer to interview since I had just moved to study abroad in London. I told Lino I was gonna try to find a copy of the book in London and that I would reach out again when I returned to Barcelona a few months later. But the truth is, I never talked to him again. During those months in London, I did, however, go to bookstores and try to find the book with the reference that Lino gave me. But none of the stores had it, nor could locate it, nor even online. As far as booksellers were concerned, the book didn't exist. And from those years, I have found a couple of emails I exchanged with a bookseller named Lucia Barahona. I was introduced to her by my friend David Bestue, who was also in London at the time doing an art residency. And uh, Lucia had been a lover of Andrea, a friend of David from Barcelona. Both Lucia and Andrea were booksellers. Andrea worked at Laie in Barcelona, and Lucia worked at Scoop Books, which is one of the biggest secondhand bookstores in London. So David introduced me to Lucia one night, and the next day, I emailed her asking about Otaviano's book. Hello, Lucia. This is Gabriel, David's friend. We met yesterday. This is the book I'm looking for. And I gave her all the information and ended, I hope you can find it. Thank you and a big hug, Gabriel. Now, she responded a week later saying that she couldn't find it and that neither could her boss, who was supposedly renowned for finding the rarest books. So, buying a copy seemed impossible. Uh, but the book was indeed available at the University of Barcelona's library. 
So when Mirari, my girlfriend at the time, came to visit, I asked her to bring that copy so at least I could see it. And I remember that when I saw it for the first time, it was, I was slightly disappointed. At first sight, it was a dull academic book with a long essay in which Ottaviano elaborates his anachronistic theory. And the text was followed by the visual examples that he uses to prove it. But, you know, at first the examples seemed unremarkable. But as I turned the pages, the visual examples got really bizarre. I'll describe them later. But the point is here that uh, I thought there was something pathetic about Ottaviano's methodology that deserved a commentary. So convinced that I was going to use it for an art project, I decided to keep the book for as long as possible, thinking that the pressure of having to return it to the library would force me to complete the project. And so the next seven emails in my search are from the university's library, demanding in a progressively more hostile tone that I return the book, which I only did a year later in May of 2011, having done nothing with it whatsoever. And after that, I honestly forgot about it. My interest was only reborn a year and a half later in December of 2012, because I received a message from Mercedes Mangrané, another friend from college, inquiring about it. Hey, Gabriel, could you remind me of the title of that book that Lino Cabezas talked about? The one about fractals found in unexpected places? The one that you stole from the library? <laughs> now, all about her email was offensively wrong, right? The book was not about fractals found in unexpected places. And although I did borrow it for a long time, I didn't steal it from the library. And I could have said something, right? I could have corrected her, but I didn't because I didn't want her to use it for a project before I did. It was my overlooked historical anecdote to do artistic research around. So the next email is a receipt from iberlibro.com, an online used books retailer. November of 2013, I finally found and bought the book for 35 euros plus shipping to Mirari's address in Barcelona, for she was soon moving in with me in New York, where I had moved a few months earlier. So again, Mirari brings me the book, this time to New York, and two years later, she breaks up with me and moves back to Spain. And this was September of 2015, and I was devastated. And around that time, I exchanged a couple of bitter emails with Maya Harakawa, who worked at Triple Canopy, an online magazine. I had been given the opportunity to submit a piece about notions of publication, and I pitched this story, my capricious obsession with Ottaviano's book. Perhaps it was only obliquely related to the field of publishing, but I found it endearing, and I guess metaphorical, of a love story that actually had a happy ending. So I sent a draft, and Maya responded skeptically with a comprehensive commentary. And among her concerns, I was especially struck by this one remark. I'm not sure why you are deciding to fixate on this object, particularly given the fact that you are saying that you never read it. And that's true, I actually never read the book, I only looked at the pictures. And perhaps more importantly, she continues, I'm not sure that your potential readers will find a way into this material. We have to give them a reason to care. Now, from an editorial perspective, Maya's critique was perfectly reasonable, right? She was urging me basic intelligibility, as I guess it was being obscure as to why I chose that object. And she was demanding appeal, which I understand is crucial to interrupt the audience's probable indifference. But reading her email was a sort of deja vu, for I have found myself in a position of lacking intelligibility and appeal 
multiple times. Back in 2010, when a script I had written was going to be published for the first time, I asked my friend Antonio Gagliano for feedback and he pointed out the same problems. Antonio said, I see drive, but no intention. I have trouble establishing the what for or the against whom. So eventually, due to my stubborn refusal to provide an attractive rationale to frame the story, the magazine rejected my pitch and the piece was never published. And that was the last time I thought about Carmelo Taviano, whose book remained collecting dust on a shelf until now that I decided to use it to introduce this history of saliva. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time today, but in the next episode, the relationship between Otaviano and Spit will hopefully be apparent. Until then, please do not hesitate to send us your stories involving Spit. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and visit our website or follow us on social media for updates. This was the History of Lubrication, episode number one. I am Gabriel Pericas. Marina Miranda here created the sound for the show, which was recorded at the Emily Harvey Foundation in New York in April of 2018. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.